Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Charlie Hoopert. He's the founder of Charisma on Command, a podcaster and a YouTuber. Most people wish that they were better communicators, more engaging, more confident and more charming. Charlie runs the biggest charisma channel on YouTube, Charisma on Command, with more than 5 million subscribers and has taught thousands of people how to be more attractive and compelling in their communication. Today, expect to learn the five archetypes of charismatic communication, how to greet someone with genuine energy, how to overcome being shy, the principles of communicating attractively to women, how to be better at small talk, how to add more humor into your conversations, why Charlie got his entire family to take MDMA, who Charlie thinks is the most charming communicator on the planet, and much more. This conversation is awesome. Charlie is a kindred spirit, despite the fact that he's across the pond, and I'm so glad that I connected with him. You feel our burgeoning romance blossom, bromance, I meant to say bromance, you feel our burgeoning bromance blossom throughout this entire episode. Uh, It sounds like I'm going to go out and see him and spend some time with him in LA uh, later this year. So yeah, uh, enjoy this. There's so much, so much to take away from this about communication and what it means to live a good life, success. Yeah, it's fantastic. Sit back and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They are the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely 
everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now it is time for the wise and wonderful Charlie Hoopert. Charlie Hooper in the building. How are you doing, man? Excellent. In my own building on the other side of the ocean, but happy to be here nonetheless. Yeah, man. Me too. Me too. What does a morning, what does a Charlie Hooper morning routine look like? So there's no routine. I wake up uh, around 11. I let my dog outside. <laughs> Sometimes he's gone inside, so I try to do that for him. Uh, and then I have some calls related to Charisma on Command exercise around 1.32 p.m. sauna. I have like a barrel sauna in the backyard, which is fucking awesome. Best best uh, four-figure purchase I've ever made in my life. I love that thing. And then in the evening, I'll play League of Legends and scream at the computer with my friends. It's the, it's the most toxic. <laughs> it is the most toxic hobby, and that's the, the definitely the one thing I don't recommend for my schedule for anyone else. Do not pick up League of Legends if you've, if you've avoided it thus far. Why? So I... I'm medium competitive in normal life, but League of Legends brings out my most vicious, cruel, whiny, complainy, it's your fault side. This and is there, fucking I, bullshit side. I truly believe that there is something in the game, and of course something inside of me, but there is something in the structure of the game where one person can just destroy and melt down the 15 to 30 minutes of hard work and me feeling like I'm better than the person I'm playing against. And I just fucking lose my mind every time I play. But it's it's the worst addiction that I have. Uh, but I, like every addiction, I just derive some sense of satisfaction from it so I don't stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just got back from doing a walk. This is my equivalent of getting mad at League of Legends things. Uh, I just got back from a walk and there is a running club that does a run on my my walk route and yeah. sometimes the people that are running, they just get in my way. So that's like my equivalent that I'm there on my walk. I'm moving slower <laughs> than them. But sometimes, dude, I saw a woman. If you ever, this is definitely an LA thing. People that have a special sort of belt that they attach a mm. dog lead to so that the dog can run with the person. <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching this thing and the dog sniffing along a wall looking for somewhere to do a wee. I'm thinking if you, if you don't keep your eye on that dog, you're going to end up being yanked like this to one side, this yeah, big yeah. fucking Alsatian thing. I'm like, you're annihilated. That's you. Your, your dog's going to be flat on its side and you're going to fall over on this icy road. Yeah, in LA, the dogs are like eight to 10 pounds max, but it's, it's the same sort of thing that we have out here, which is we often have these women who push their dogs in strollers. Uh, and to, you are to a dog, it's, it's this white fluffy little thing, I swear to God, and they are the worst behaved dogs you've ever seen they scream and bark at everybody that's that's what a lot of la is like very poorly trained animals that are just 
peeing and pooping in the wrong places and barking at it's everybody. like you on League so, of Legends. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly like me in League of Legends. So, yeah, I, I should be less judgmental of those poor dogs because we have a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, so you've been coaching people on how to be more charismatic and better communicators for a very, very long time. And that's the fundamentals of your channel as well, Charisma on Command, which is fucking dope. And congratulations on creating something which is managed to be both popular and actually add value which I think is a difficult, uh, a very difficult sort of balance to strike. How do you, after all of this time thinking about it, how do you break down charisma into its component parts? Like, how do you Mm -hmm. see it now after all of this time thinking about it? Well, there's a lot of different frameworks that I've used over the years. Um, One of them is, is that there's not simply one style of charisma. I guess I'll even step back. Generally, I think of charisma as the ability to influence other people. And I take out of that, things that obviously influence other people like beauty and talent. Because while, you know, that there's other channels for that. If you want to learn how to be super hot and sexy, you can be very influential on, Ali Abdal. on that. Yeah, exactly. Go to Ali <laughs> Abdal. Uh, he's got everything you need for your beauty tips. And if, you know, Elon Musk, he, I was just listening to him on Lex Friedman. He's stuttering, you know, stumbling over what he says very often. Takes a long time, which isn't necessarily bad in itself to communicate a point. But you don't want to emulate his speaking style. What you might want to emulate is perhaps his work ethic and his first principles thinking. So I, I take all of that stuff out of the realm of influence. And what you're left with is basically personality and character-driven influence. And there's different types of it. One type, you can think of like a Conor McGregor type person, super high conviction, a Steve Jobs who gets other people to want to be near them, around them, participate in their things because we love people seem like they can know the future. Like we want to be around people that have deep, deep beliefs in what they're doing and why they're doing it because so many of us lack that in ourselves. So you've got the high conviction types, you've got authentic types, your Joe Rogans, who you implicitly trust because they say things that put themselves at social disadvantage sometimes. They'll say the unpopular opinion or say, hey, I don't agree with this mainstream take on things. And that slowly over time builds a deep sense of trust in those who have spent the most time around them. You've got your comedians, your Kevin Hart's, all those type of people who are just funny and they make you smile and laugh anytime you're around them. Energetic types like Will Smith, who they come into the talk show and they're big and loud. And whenever you're around them, you just, you want to participate in the vibe that they're bringing. And then lastly, you have your empathetic types like Oprah Winfrey, who will sit down, look you in the eye and ask you, you know, you know, what would your mother say about that and bring a tear to your eye and make you cry? So there's not necessarily one style to do it, but those are the generally the five types that I see most commonly in the breakdowns that we do. And then it's just a matter of picking and choosing the things that feel closest to where you are while, you know, being willing to change, but not losing the thing about you that, that you might want to keep. Uh, and that's, that's often a question we get. How do you be charismatic while retaining the essence of who you are? Is there a tension there between those? I think so. Yeah, for sure. And, and when you're starting to learn, I think one of the biggest Uh, the biggest obstacles to people changing anything in their life is that this feels like who they are. And what I often tell them is that the personality that you're showcasing today is not intrinsic to who you are. It is not how you were born. It is often the traumas and successes of 13-year-old you have shaped the way that you are. And sometimes you have that guy who was the stud at age 13, and for the rest of his life, he just acts like a little prince. And you can have this another person. 45 years old, but still crushing (laughs) it because he was the hottest kid in school at 13. Yes, exactly. And then you have, you know, you have the flip side of that, which was more me, was uh, much more reserved, reserved, quiet, didn't feel that I had the right to take up any space. And that needs to be 
unlearned. And the thing that gets in the way is thinking, oh, no, this is me. I am just introverted, shy, and, and any movement away from this would be a self-betrayal. So that's oftentimes the first obstacle that we have to overcome when anyone is learning is there is a you in there. We just want to be the best version of yourself, not necessarily who you were conditioned to be in middle school. Yeah, that self-betrayal is an interesting way to frame it. That there's something mm-hmm. uh, like sacred about mm-hmm. the the natural way that you have got yourself to this point. But I don't know, maybe it's my exposure to the personal development world that most of that feels like bollocks to me. Most of that just feels like you rationalizing random chance as opposed to intentional effort. Mm-hmm. Look, you, you've had a ton of influences on your charisma and your extroversion and your introversion and your speech patterns and so on and so forth. The fact that you didn't get to choose them doesn't make them any more a part of you than the ones that you did get to choose. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... We we deal with this question oftentimes at the beginning, it's, and I'll say some version of what you just said, which is you didn't choose these influences on you, yet you treat them as if you could not possibly change them without cutting off one of your own arms. And that I think the reason that this is such a sticky belief is because it's self-serving. In some ways, it's easier to get crappy social results, crappy professional results than it is to take on the effort of, oh, no, this is my responsibility. I can change it without being immoral or unethical, but it might be challenging and it might make me do things that scare me and require a lot of courage. Therefore, my brain is going to do me the favor of just saying, oh, no, that, would be, that wouldn't be me. That's a self-betrayal. I don't even have to worry about that. And I can just complain instead about some of the results that I'm getting. So that, that can be a trap early on for a lot of people. But I think once people get into our channel, hopefully the philosophy of how to evolve is implicit in a lot of what we teach. And it's not destroy everything about you who you were. It is, it is improve things try these different patterns and these different habits on, like a style of clothing, doesn't have to become who you are, but these might get you better results in your social endeavors. Who were your main influences when you were learning this stuff, charisma and communication and confidence and stuff? Yeah, it was, so there were sometimes guys you'll never know or the friends that were in my friend group that would literally just repeat jokes that I said quietly and get a big laugh. <laughs> it drove me nuts. There's one guy, Austin, who was just like a hurricane of charisma. Uh, and he was he was a friend of a friend. Whenever I hung around him, I felt special whenever he was nice to me. Literally, he would repeat things that I said, and the group would follow him. I'd be like, hey, guys, is it time to go out to get lunch? No response. Five minutes later, yo, I'm feeling pretty hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that type of thing, everybody, uh, all the people around me who were getting different results actually had a much larger influence on me than any celebrity or any talk show host or anything like that. What about books? Books, uh, yeah, when I was starting... A lot of it was books that told me that I could change. So Tony Robbins was a big influence early on. I'm trying to think what the other ones were. Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon was huge. The idea that self-esteem, we, we have this idea, I think, increasingly, and he talks about it probably when he wrote it in the 70s or 80s, that self-esteem is one's birthright, that you ought to just feel really good about yourself because you exist. And he takes a very different approach, which is, Self-esteem is your reputation with yourself. And if you're the type of person who lies all the time, doesn't keep your word, doesn't go to the gym when you set your New Year's resolution, your reputation with yourself is going to be a lousy one. That of somebody who is unreliable, uh, lies, all these sorts of things. And by changing your behavior, you can change the way that you perceive yourself. And that has a profound effect on how you present yourself to other people and then how they perceive you. So that book was instrumental for giving me 
not just platitudes about self-esteem, like you deserve it, you can, you can do it, affirmative type things, but here's what you need to do in your life. And in fact, he has these sentence completions exercises that'll be like, if I was 5% more integrous today, I would. And you fill these things out. And I would often write, I wouldn't have fibbed about that thing that I lied about in conversation. I probably would have talked to that girl that I had a crush on and not pretended to, you know, not have noticed her at all. And so you write these out and over time they weigh on you and you start to do the things that would make you have more integrity. And then you feel better about yourself and it's got this whole positive feedback look. So I love, love, love uh, Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. That's the Naval thing, right? Confidence isn't given, it's earned. And it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't it be... Why wouldn't it be the sort of thing that you need to prove to yourself? It's a reputation that you have with yourself and you're always keeping score, even if you don't think you are. Yes, yes. And I'm sure, I'm sure we'll talk about it. The, where, where I came from, I think where a lot of people come from is you are your patterns, right? That's, that's what we learned. You are who you were at 13 years old in middle school. And the big shift was here is you can become your habits, right? You can shift these habits. You can change the way that you feel about yourself. And I'd say recently I've gone back a little bit and recovered the sense that there, I, I thought that I wasn't an introvert throughout my 20s because I'd built these extroverted habits. And I've recently realized that, no, I definitely still have this introverted streak in me that doesn't seem to go away despite any sort of habituation. And so I do think that there is an essence to our personality, but we probably overestimate what that is when we're in our young 20s and haven't done any sort of self-development work. And it's only now that I'm in my 30s that I can be like, this was me. This is what got laid on top of me. I want to take out what got laid on top of me, choose other things, but also respect that there are these parts of me that do not, that seem so resistant to change that I'm just going to, you know, embrace them and love them and accept them, even if they're not ideal for social scenarios. Like I'm an introvert and, you know, I'm pissed at League of Legends, which probably, probably isn't core to my behavior. I'm just joking about that one. How do you define uh, introvert and extrovert? Uh, I, I think the way that I've heard most commonly defined is not well, here, here's the trick is some people think if I like social situations, therefore I'm an extrovert. And if I don't like them and I'm an introvert. And I think a trap there is that you cannot like social situations because you don't know how to manage them. And therefore any sort of social situation that you're in is going to suck. And you can compare it to like, do you like basketball or don't you? Well, you would like it if you were a dominant center that was scoring all the time and you'd probably hate it if you got blocked every single time. So it's tough to evaluate if you like social situations or not before you have the skill, talent, personality to succeed and enjoy them at the highest level. So what I saw is that at first I was like, no, I'm an introvert. Then I learned how to succeed in social situations and I was elated, had a great time in bars, clubs, you know, networking events, all those sorts of things. But in reflecting on it, I still see that those situations drained me even at the end. And I really oftentimes enjoy staying home, reading a book, being left alone. And I get some of my best thinking and uh, most, some of my happiest moments are alone. And I think, I think there's something very introverted about that when I could be out on a Friday night and I am just so happy to not be. Not because I couldn't do the things that I might want to do on that Friday night socially, but because I just love being alone. So that's, that's why I say that I'm an introvert. Yeah, the best definition that I've, or the most useful definition that I've heard for it is where do you get your energy from? Do you get your energy from being on your own or do you get your energy from being around other people? Sure. If you're around yes. other people alone, do you need to think, oh, fuck me, right? I got to spend a couple of evenings in the house on my own. Or if you do that, mm -hmm. do you start climbing the walls? 
and needing yeah. to go out. There's another uh, relating to the this tension between inner essence and sort of truth and then ability to make yourself and become and being and stuff like that. Um, I had Robert Plowman, the fourth most cited psychologist of the 20th century on the show. So he's a, a genes behavioral geneticist guy. And he said, our nature does not predetermine, but it does predispose. Mm. That was how he put it across. For instance, you could have the genes and the predisposition to be an alcoholic, but if you're born on an island that doesn't have any alcohol, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so there is this, there's always this tension, right? There's always this tension between your conditioning and your um, predisposition. Yeah. And of course, the environment, which is what you just described there, which is maybe you're predisposed to be an introvert, but you get this early positive feedback in social situations. That's going to be very different for, for how you wind up in life. So my goal was to know that I could that I could succeed in social situations and then to make that free choice knowing I could go out and have it be really fun and not terrifying or I could stay in and have it be whatever that's going to be. Now I want to make the choice. And I find myself increasingly making the choice to stay in, not out of fear, which is what it was for the first, I don't know, 18, 20 years of my life, but out of a, a genuine free decision where I, I could find enjoyment in either scenario. I think Derek from More Plates, More Dates says the same thing. He has the mm -hmm. same approach. Like he was terrified of approaching girls and was always i think he's it felt a little bit when he's talking about it kind of like having a gun to his head in a relationship because he was always terrified the relationship mm. would end because he had nothing in the locker to be able to get a new one if it did which put yeah. him in a needy state and anyone that's read mark manson's models knows that's not a very powerful position to be in being needy is going to turn the other party off especially as a guy uh, so I mm -hmm. think that was his solution as well. Look, I, w I want to give myself more sovereignty and the more degrees of freedom that I have access to, even if I choose to not use the extroversion or the going out or any of that, the more that I can do, the more comfortable that I'm going to feel in myself. Yeah, 100%. You know, I'm curious if you had this because I know you do the nightclub stuff and have been in promotion for a while. When I first moved to California, I had been so, throughout my 20s, I had trained myself, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights, you go out, you have to have a good time. I had actually instilled in myself a sense of social FOMO, where if I wasn't participating in the event, I felt a tremendous amount of anxiety, and I didn't realize it until my first weekend in California when I didn't have any friends in the area, and it was a Friday night, and by all accounts, I should have just moved my stuff in, unpacked, but I was like, I have to go, I have to find the bar, I gotta be on Yelp, I gotta go for whatever, I'm gonna be by myself, that's what I have to do, and I recognized that while it was a fantastic journey and I learned a lot in becoming more outgoing and charismatic and confident that I had created some new neuroses and some new anxieties around <laughs> needing to do that instead of being able to do that. So that's sort of what I've been unwinding in the last couple of years is truly trying to have the choice because I recognize in my 20s, I felt like I had a choice, but really I just went to the flip side of the coin and demanded that of myself constantly. Yeah. Fuck. Well, so I never had that with partying. And that's yeah. the difference between being the party and running the party. I yeah. I went out and partied, but we had a kind of like an unwritten rule that you just didn't get fucked at your own event. Like you can go and mm -hmm. cause complete havoc at six nights a week, just on a Saturday <laughs> when our money's on the line and you've got to cash the till at the end of the night. And if there's any problems with the police or the council or the management, you need to deal with it. Just you know, hang fire and there'll be an after party and you can sniff your head off until 2 p.m. on a Sunday <laughs> or whatever. And it's 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 sweet. Um, but you're, it's so interesting. The. How would you say the malignant side effects 
that you create by doing a thing downstream, what that, like mm -hmm. the after ripples that that causes. So you wanted to create um, an ability to go out and be extroverted and be charismatic. That meant that you had to go out frequently. That meant that you had to fall in love. You had to actually generate mm -hmm. a, a degree of love for going out or else the willpower to do it would have been completely unbelievable. And then after a while, you realize, oh, hang on. I, I, I'm like being dragged along by the creature that I created here. So the mm -hmm. thing that happened with me was with regards to business. I ran a business. I wanted the business to be successful. I needed to start to generate that engine and to start to get that moving. And then I couldn't slow the momentum down when yeah. I wanted to take time away from work. I had FOMO and fear around delegating responsibility, around starting to move myself out and giving other people different tasks that they could do so that my workload would be reduced. Uh, and that's still now, man, that's one of the main uh, existential challenges that I have. Look, like work less, work less, be less neurotic yeah. about the things that you need to do. So there's people need that during those years, like 18 to 25, like be careful of the things that you dedicate yourself to, <laughs> because those are the things that you're going to try and deprogram when you're 35. <laughs> you got to deprogram later. That's funny. I think that it is almost a natural law that the advantages of one phase of your life will be the obstacles in the subsequent one. And and the thing that you're trying to unwind, delegating. You had to learn when you were starting your business that you couldn't delegate. In fact, you probably would have loved to have delegated early on, but you needed to develop the skill of saying, I can't trust anybody to do this. It's nobody's gonna come help me. I gotta do it myself. So you build that muscle and it's absolutely necessary until you get to a point in which you have to go, hey, that thing that got you here is the obstacle to getting to whatever comes after this. And so I think that that is true in any sort of personal development and all that I've come up with is when it's time, you're going to have to let go and it's going to be a bitch. <laughs> it's going to be very uncomfortable to unwind what you've done before and seemingly go backwards, but you're not. It's like a spiral. You know, you, yeah. and you couldn't delegate down here, and then you're, but you're coming back around and now <laughs> delegating is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's There's two, uh, two things that come to mind. One, I watched a video today that was really well done about... Um, the problem with the personal development world, just one of those YouTube videos. But the guy had a really good point. He had a problem with hustle culture because he said that it gets people to focus on working harder as opposed to working more effectively. So oh, yeah. um, speed over direction. And this is the equivalent there that what got you here, the amount of hard work and graft and grind and nose against the grindstone and late nights. You know, if you are, he uses the example of writing a fitness blog and just grinding it out three articles a day for five years when you don't realize that actually taking a step back and thinking well should i be doing youtube should i spend a little bit of time on there or maybe yeah. if i actually didn't do a blog but i kind of did some live streams or i did whatever strategies that would that would be one of the things that would change and um yet to it's a real interesting one man like the challenges that people have around these things as they grow up it's um yeah i wanted to ask i'm curious if this is just my circle i've noticed that the the people around me, at least, that seem to struggle are some of the hustle culture people. And the people that have, now that I'm 34, and you know, a lot of us started, we were 23, it's been 10 years. The people that have made businesses that have worked, they have worked hard, but they've never been grind set hustle. Most of them are not grind set hustle culture type people. And I'm curious if that's just a, an accident of my friend circle or if you've seen the same sort of thing in the people that you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I've probably got good examples for both sides of the fence mm -hmm. so one of the guys that i got close with in austin was aubrey marcus from on it 
And one of the things that I realized with him, I've never been around someone like him. He is so competitive about mm. fucking everything, man. Like he is the quintessential founder, CEO, startup, alpha male, aggressive type of guy. So mm. not in a not in like a um a confrontational way, but he's he's forthcoming. So fucking we go into on it the gym and me and one of the female trainers that's there are going in and Aubrey and his missus Vilana are, are going in. And he's like, Oh what why don't we have teams? I'm like, Oh yeah, team sounds team sounds cool. <laughs> I see team, where this teams, is going. <laughs> team sound team sounds fun. Uh, we haven't warmed up. We haven't touched a single piece of equipment, right? We've come in out of the warm Austin weather, but we're co- essentially cold. And he's like, why don't we do um, a thousand meters on the ski erg for time in teams of two? And that can be the warm up. Like, Aubrey, that's, that's, that's like a, a really disgusting workout. That you, that's the warm up. But he wanted, to, he wanted to send it. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. So we do it. And it's it, like pedal to the metal immediately hard and i just thought well that's why that shows somebody who has that real just in everything he says mm-hmm. we, i played pickleball i went to his house and we played pickleball and he wants to i was on his team and he wants to fucking win like it was me and him taking on a couple of other guys and he wants to he wants to win hard and i'm like i am not surprised that your company got sold to unilever for a shit ton of money because you yeah. are you are built to beat the other guy um but it's, then i have i have buddies that uh not like that at all and have just as successful businesses. Hmm. I wonder, have you seen that that corresponds to satisfaction, fulfillment or happiness in one direction or the other, or again, just a mixed bag? I would say on average, the people that have the hustle culture thing are less happy. Um, I think that that does correspond that most of that, most of the motivation to really, really push it comes from a place of insufficiency it comes from a place of trying to fill the hole with the work. What about you? What do you think? That was my inkling, but I can't tell if I'm just making myself feel good for not having sold my business to Unilever. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I don't have a big enough is. void inside of me that's filled by League of Legends. Well, I, I, I can at least say with myself, I work the hardest, get the most fit, do all the things when I feel the worst. And that that's just me, and I don't want to put that on anybody else, but when I am recognizing how wonderful life is, I tend to sit more and just look around more. And I tend to, Ooh, there goes my dog. <laughs> Come here, bud. Uh, and I tend to, to work less. So I don't, I don't know what's going on with other people. And I know that Aubrey, I don't know the guy, but he's clearly deep into spirituality and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah. No, uh, he's, um, I think he's got, from the outside looking in, he's got a balance, but it's uh, on average, I would say that most of the people that I know that are incredibly driven are also mm-hmm. unhappy or they, they have higher rates of unhappiness, which is like, all right, is the price that you want to pay for your success to be unhappy and fucking miserable? Well, yeah. if, if success is supposed to be in the service of happiness and by making yourself into the person that can be successful, you make yourself miserable. What, what, like just shortcut it, just be happy mm-hmm. and don't worry well, about see, that. It seems to me that the work is actually in service of preventing inner inner reflection uh and that's actually why stay so busy work so hard is because it actually it, it does you a, the favor of making you not have to look at any of the other sorts of things which is it's it's doing you a solid <laughs> at that point uh, yeah. i've interacted yeah. with those types of people and we don't we don't 
become close friends. I was, I had a great conversation with you the other day and it seemed like we're similar in that regard, which is we want a level of material success, but also these questions of for what, why, what got me into this and what keeps me in this? Did I already achieve the thing that brought me here? And if I did, am I going to, am I just going to set more moving goalposts and convince myself that that's the game while living in a constant state of I'm not there? Or yep. is there ever an arrival? And and there's a lot of disagreement over this. But to me, I've been I've been meditating, not meditating, but thinking a lot about what is enough in my life. And if I look back 10 years, my life today, I would have said, would have been enough forever. So if it's not, then my mental scheme is screwed up. Yep. <laughs> something something has gone wrong and I need to reevaluate what started this drive in the first place. Hedonic adaptation is a hell of a drug, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It is, it is, oh my God. We had a sales day for our course yesterday that was near record highs. And the dopamine spike that I got from it was instantaneous. And now a new baseline has been set. And I, and I can watch these sorts of processes unfold, unfold in me. And it's so frustrating. I just want to want the things that make me fulfilled, but I want the things that don't. <laughs> and so, so what I've started trying to do it, how, to, how to deal with this is, is to control my environment. Don't spend time on Instagram. Get off of the things that drive FOMO in you. Uh, it's almost, and maybe this isn't healthy, putting blinders on the things that trigger that sense of lack or of missing out. Uh, well, that's, so that's, a, that's an interesting right uh, way to challenge yourself, right? Because you, have, mm -hmm. you can decide to hide away from the things that cause that. Mm -hmm. And I always get conflicted about whether or not that's a less virtuous path than simply overcoming them myself yeah. sure. you feel this a hundred percent i think that any time you repress deny avoid you you have cheated yourself in a degree of the most fundamental solution to the problem so if like if instagram triggers me and makes me want to go out or be single or do any stuff like that that is almost like the leaf of a plant that has a much deeper root and so what I can do is I can, you know, section off that leaf and not look at that leaf, but I haven't addressed whatever it is that was causing that to be uh, a frustration or temptation in my life. Uh, and so, yeah, I have a mix. My, my approach is, is definitely mixed. It's on one hand, avoid the things that trigger me, but also I'm trying to do MDMA therapy and all these kinds of stuff where you do go in and you touch the root and it has nothing to do with Instagram it has, and everything to do with you and your own feelings about yourself and oftentimes early childhood experiences and all that, that fun stuff. All right. So getting back to charisma, talk me through. Yeah, let's go back. Yeah, let's get that. Let's get the main thrust. What are the basic principles that people should grasp if they want to come across well when they're communicating? I don't know that we've actually boiled it down to the basic. What, the way that we structure our teaching is that we have, within our course, we have 30 days. And we start with first impressions, talk about confidence, conversation, uh, and go down the line. Some of the first things that we talk about, which I presume are, I guess, the most basic, is that when you're first interacting with someone, a great way to be a conversational leader is to set the vibe a level higher than you need to. So people often say, how are you doing? And people often respond, fine. And I'm guilty of this as well. But if you want to practice being charismatic, find a way to, to amp yourself up to be fantastic or great or amazing. That immediately sets the conversation off on a stronger foot. Uh, you also get these very, very common questions. They're almost these social niceties that we ask one another when we're getting to know one another. What do you do for a living? Where are you from? And people take these gimme questions and just submarine the conversation. You know, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a consultant. 
And so in just teaching people, look, you already have habits. These aren't who you are. Can we just make these start the conversation off on a much stronger foot? So we have worksheets within the course and we kind of talk about some of the stuff on the YouTube channel. Instead of saying that you're a consultant, realize that the question the person is asking you is, please tell me anything interesting about yourself with which I can connect. That's what they're saying. When they say, where are you from? They're going, please say a city that I've been to. So I can say, oh my God, like the weather is so great. And do the favor of sticking out some Velcro for them to attach onto. So instead of saying Philadelphia, I might say, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, but I was always a little bit of a crazy person. So in college, I moved to Brazil and did all this crazy entrepreneurial stuff with a bunch of friends. But now I've realized that I much prefer uh, summer sports and surfing, and I live in California. Within that answer, there's surfing, there's sports, there's entrepreneurism, there's adventure, there's traveling internationally. There's all these different directions that the person that you're speaking to can listen to and decide to hook into. And what happens is when you give them five, six, seven options in a three-sentence answer, you're going to naturally go down conversations that both people are more interested in. So you might find yourself with one person talking about extreme sports, and you're super fascinated on that. On the other hand, you're talking about something else. When we started talking, you had in your bio <laughs> club promoter or something like that. And the first question I asked you was like, yo, tell me about club promoting because that was something that I did when I was in New York. Uh, and so when you give people more about you to hook into early on in conversation, that helps tremendously. Another big thing in conversation is that we often take questions too literally. Again, the, what people are trying to do when they're meeting one another is just suss out a vibe. And so if you're answering every question very literally, the vibe that you're giving is this is an interview. And I'm just going to, you know, and sometimes that's great when you're diving down into the values that you have and that they have and you can really connect over that. But oftentimes just answering one of the questions in a non-literal fashion sets the vibe of I'm here to have fun. And this is especially important if you're out at a nightclub or something like that. So when someone asks you where you're from in a nightclub, you don't have to give them the whole Philadelphia spiel. You can say, you know, can't you tell that I'm from the Congo or you know, something, something ridiculous that can't possibly be true given your skin tone. And that sets the tone of the conversation to go down a much more fun, interesting vibe. So that's, there's a lot that we talk about, but really starting an interaction in the direction you'd like it to head and being cognizant of that is a large part of the beginnings of what we teach because then the conversation can kind of just take care of itself. Yeah, I see comedians a lot. I'm good buddies with Daniel Sloss. So here's, here's a mm. fucking perfect example, right? Uh, Michael Malice, who's been on Rogan a ton, he's a really good buddy of mine. Mm. And um, I, I had it in my head about Blair White, who is a, a trans YouTuber. And I brought her up on an episode a couple of weeks ago uh, and I became good friends with her while I was in Austin. And I messaged Malice and I said, hey man, like, I've been fucking debating about this for ages because Blair looks so much like a, a, a girl, but biologically she isn't. Um, if she went to prison, what prison would you send her to? And he just responded and said, Alcatraz. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. Because it completely yeah, yeah. dispels, it completely dispels like my serious philosophical inquiry, but also is like quite amicable. I think that, I, and I'm, I'm a philosophy major, I'm much more likely to answer questions literally, but I have those friends in my life and they're always appreciated. Now, you don't want to go 100%, I can't answer a question seriously, and I don't think that's Michael Malice. He'll talk seriously about topics. But people want to have much more fun than they're having. And so if you could be the person that breaks them out of the serious moment, whether it's via text or in conversation, they're going to appreciate you, want you around more. And it seems like a superpower, but all you're doing is not taking questions literally. If that's all you did, you would see that 
And people are afraid to do it in the corporate world. That's the other thing. This is one of the things that got me ahead in work was just not, not buying into the implicit social norms of the workplace so that when you came in, you were supposed to be very serious. Being able to have fun in that sort of an environment is what ingratiated me to the bosses, made them much more amenable when I left. They wound up paying me a lot of money to work as an at-home consultant. It just, it worked out fantastically. And it was not because I was the best consultant. It was because we'd built a human relationship instead of a corporate relationship. So again, those are the types of things that just work in almost any sort of environment, dating, professional, whatever. It's crazy how much this sort of stuff feels like it would make someone stand out. You know, they're relatively easy principles to follow. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know that if somebody was to do this and deliver effectively on a regular basis, that they would be in probably the top 5% of communicators, top 5% of funny people that you know. Yeah, yeah. I and, and again, within this, it's funny that you say this because there still is what I talk about, the authentic type. And Joe Rogan happens to be a comedian as well. But there are people that don't have to do this thing. This is one tip amongst many. What you can do is when asked a serious question, give tough answers you know, that are honest. And over time, you will establish a reputation as somebody that is very authentic, that people trust and like for different reasons. And if you're out there listening, you can think of somebody right now that probably fits the bill. Uh, so you don't have to do any one of these things. It's about finding the one that when you try it on, feels good for you and that you can lean into more and good things tend to happen. How much do you think that people can change their charisma levels? So if someone feels shy or introverted, how much have you found that people can change this? Are people infinitely malleable when it comes to their charisma level? No, no. I don't think you're likely to get a Mark Zuckerberg to a Will Smith. I don't, like, I don't think that's going to happen with all the media training in the world. But Mark Zuckerberg has gotten better. And I actually think if he really cared to, could get become a much stronger communicator than he is. So anybody can get considerably better. They can, I think, dramatically in most cases, improve their dating life, their friendship circles, the confidence and happiness that they feel in a social environment. But it's not infinitely malleable. Uh, there are some people that I look at, like Russell Brand is a conversational genius. I I try to break down what people do. And with so many people, I can put their responses into buckets. Like Tom Holland is gonna respond with a funny story. You know, RDJ is gonna make a quit. Like, and you, and you can emulate those styles and get them. Russell's spontaneity and his almost, the fact that he's got so many different jokes and references that he leans into, I, I gush over him all the time, but I, I wish I could do what he could do and I can't capture it in a simple model like I can with some other people. Uh, so there's definitely levels, and I, I can't do what he does un- under any circumstances. He's like a lot. lexical jujitsu black belt. Yes, yes. And he's capable of going from hilarious commentary to very value-driven, you know, what is the purpose of life within the span of two sentences, which is super attractive because that's, I think, where a lot of us live. We want to have fun, but we're also interested in in the deeper meaning of things. How would you characterize some of the trends given the fact that you've broken down russell brand a bunch of times i've enjoyed some of the videos that you've done on him what are some of the principles that we can learn from russell brand or what are some of the uh, characteristics that he relies on oh man he's so there's a lot so there's there's the flirtatious pre uh, enlightenment russell brand which is if you look at what he does he treats everyone men and women flirtatiously 
which is a general principle for dating. If you want to be a better flirt, you have to flirt with everybody. You have to flirt with men and compliment them. You have to flirt with the older woman who you're definitely not attracted to. And then, of course, he flirts with the beautiful women who he's sometimes interviewing and they're, they're giggling about it. So that's one of the things that he does is flirts with the entire world. And what that means is he's cheeky, he's playful. He uh, does this, we have a breakdown of push-pull where he oftentimes will give you a heartfelt compliment, but then relieve the tension at the end of it by just saying some sort of uh, uh, a joke that, that relieves the tension. And you can see what we're talking about in the video. I can't think of what he actually does right now. Uh, so that's one of the big things that he does. He also, and I guess I, don't, I, I have never been able to figure out how and why he makes these decisions. Depending on the question that you ask him, you could get a totally ridiculous joke answer or the most sincere value-driven, heartfelt connection that that you would ever expect. And I can't figure out how and why he makes the, that decision, but he does, and it makes him very fascinating to listen to because you don't know what's going to come up from him. Well, that uh, unpredictability so suggests authenticity. It suggests that there isn't an agenda behind yeah. this because you can't predict, oh, Russell's got asked a question about God. Here we go again with the mm-hmm. story from when he was five years old or whatever. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and you know, there's people that I I love Tony Robbins, but he is so predictable. <laughs> if you listen to a Tony Robbins interview, like I have, I've listened to all of them. He's got thirty or forty stories, and depending on what you ask, you're go- you're going to hear one of those stories told in the same way with the same punchline. Because as an educator and teacher, he knows that it has an intended effect. But it definitely does leave me as someone who has watched a lot of him, wondering if I've ever seen the real him if i've ever seen behind that uh performative social curtain still love the guy but yeah you're right it it totally suggests authenticity when it seems as if he's genuinely doesn't know what he's going to say before he says it it's whatever is, is surging inside him in that moment what about the new russell brand post dmt post enlightenment yeah so he's i think still has a lot of it he's not as flirtatious as he used to be i think what he does a fantastic job of is being authentic in his positions like you know where he stands politically but he can sit down with a candace owens and be non-judgmental not assume that she is an evil person trying to destroy the world and maintain a playfulness and curiosity in the face of ideas that are bitterly opposed to his ideals and i think that that is incredibly rare when you see Candace Owens talk to anyone else who disagrees with her because it's going to fall apart quickly on both sides. They're both going to accuse each other of bad faith. He's genuinely able to, or generally able to, maintain a good faith vibe in any sort of political or spiritual disagreement, which I think is comes from a place of actually not thinking that he has all the answers, which you can't fake. Dude, you, that's you, exactly what I had in my head. The fact that yeah. he's got strong opinions held loosely, not loose opinions held strongly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I could gush about him over and over. <laughs> yeah. All right. So go, like let's get back boy. to shyness. Let's get away from <laughs> Russell Brand and his turbo penis. Um, what about if someone is feeling shy, they don't have a lot of social confidence? How can someone overcome that? How can they develop more? So I think that uh, we talk often about how courage is a muscle. And it's not the answer that a lot of people want to get. But I think progressive exposure therapy is, is really is the way. And so, again, in the course, we start very easy. If you're shy, you're probably 
biting your tongue often, not saying that you think, and you're probably mistaking that for, I don't have anything to say, nothing comes to mind. The truth is the filter in your head is so high that nothing breaks through that as being worthy of being said. And so when we're talking to shy people, what we often tell them to do is with, say that you're in a situation with a taxi driver or uh, someone else who's working for you, a waiter, a cashier, say one extra sentence, right? So the normal thing is that'll be 592, you give them your thing. But something is in your head. There's a magazine cover there. The weather is hot. Uh, They have a nice earring or something. Say one extra thing. And what we're trying to teach them to do is to lower that filter of what would be acceptable to say to someone. Now, there are people that have the reverse problem where they blabber on and on and on, and we need to teach them to be a bit more selective. But when you're shy, I think that's oftentimes the biggest problem is that you think that the things that you have to say are such crap that you communicate that with every fiber of your being. And so once you're saying them, then we have to teach you, okay, say it with your chest. <laughs> say it like you mean it. Don't, don't trail off at the end of sentences. If you're in a group conversation, do not let someone cut you off until you hit a period. So if you're mid-conversation with someone and you're finishing your thought and they jump in, you have to get to the end of it like now. And then they can take over. So it's not about being a conversational bully. It's about learning to take up conversational space in a way that is assertive. Uh, so that's, that's a very common thing that we see with, with shy people is that they're reluctant to do that. But just a handful of, of models like those goes a long way. And all of a sudden they're like, they didn't cut me off a second time. They realized that I wasn't going to just disappear. And, you know, they feel very happy about it. What about the tailing off at the end of sentences thing? That's definitely something that I notice people do if they're uncomfortable in a social situation or a little bit Mm -hmm. shy. How can people overcome that? Well, the general rule is you have to finish it with the same decibel level that you started it with. (laughs) You've, You've got to find a way. And the way that we teach people is like, look, these are new habits. When you're learning them, they might not feel like you. It's going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to go, this charisma thing isn't for me. So just focus on one thing per day. Our videos are in part entertainment. They've got five, six things. If you try to do that all, you are going to live in your head. We want you to be in the conversation, reacting, listening. But also, I do want you thinking of one thing that you're going to do differently that day. And so what we do in the course is we structure it differently so you have one thing for each day. But if you're a shy person and you're out there, The thing that you might think of for today is if I'm in a group setting this evening, make sure that I finish any sentence before I yield the floor. And that's it. And then you could do whatever you want. You could be awkward with your body language. You could make crappy eye contact. You could say dumb things, but you just focus on that. And over time, you're stacking these habits on top of each other such that when you get five, six, seven, eight of these together, you really do have a much more powerful personality. Talk to me about the tension between needing to learn a skill in communication Mm -hmm. and needing to be sufficiently in the conversation to be able to flow through things because you have this system one, system two dynamic going on here, right? We need to be very deliberate. System two, I'm thinking about it. Oh, fuck, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it so much that I realize I haven't moved my body for the last three minutes because (laughs) I've been constantly thinking about finishing my sentences at the same fucking decibel level because of that Charlie guy. Yeah, yeah. So this this is a tension and I have... The ways that I hear people say to relieve it, just be yourself, I find are, do not actually lead to growth. They might lead to evolution over time as things go back, but if you want to deliberately grow, I think you have to deal with this tension. The way that we've done it is just by having one thing that you're focusing on per day, and it would be one small thing. And sometimes it's literally just a thing that occurs at the beginning of an interaction. Like, I'm going to say my answer to where are you from, like the one that I practiced and built, as opposed to the one that is reflexive. 
and so that's how we do it. So that there definitely is some time where I'm taking you out of the flow of conversation, and I recognize that. But I do. I have not found a better way to learn a skill. I think it requires deliberate. I don't know if it's system one or two. It requires that deliberate removing yourself from the flow of how things have always been a little bit for a period of time. Uh, There's an it, awesome, awesome story about Tiger Woods when he was early in his career and he realized that he had some, um, how would you say, perversions in his swing. He had some mm, perversions. Uh, inefficiencies, <laughs> perversions. Yeah, yeah, sure. he had some perversions funny. elsewhere as well. Um, he had some perversions in his swing that was causing him to be less accurate and less consistent than he needed to be. And the decision was, look, if you want to be the best in the world, we need to rebuild your swing from scratch. And this meant that he had to take a bunch of steps back. He'd stop being system one. He could have gone on being the perfectly adequate version of Tiger Woods for the rest of his career without having Mm -hmm. to do this. So he purposefully had to get worse before he could get better because he was going to have to relearn all of the different things. And I kind of feel like there's an analogy to draw here between this and purposeful conversationalizing. 100%. And I don't know how Tiger went about that. And maybe maybe there is a better way that I've yet to discover. But it's the way that I did it because I was getting overwhelmed when I was trying to do everything. I remember just being like, okay, and you stand like this and you do this. And all of a sudden I could be in his social interaction and not have been there literally at all. I was just totally in the realm of thinking, planning, scheming in my head. And so that didn't work, which is why we went back to the let's take one element of the swing at a time. Let's start with just doing what we do with a different grip. Let's now let's worry about the hips now. And and that was how over time. I was able to still be in interaction, still be in my head a little bit, but building towards what wound up becoming a very different way after months and years of doing this, of of being generally. Yeah, and I'm guessing that reps, repetitions of this is- Oh gosh, yeah, and you nailed it. Yeah, I'm forgetting the most basic stuff and I appreciate you bringing it up. It truly is just reps. Uh, the nice thing is that, you know how there's beginner gains in the gym? Because nobody focuses on this stuff, it comes so quickly. This is not like, it's easier than learning an instrument. It's easier than, than putting on muscle mass. And it's because, it's, it's like if you lived in a world where no one worked out, how quickly could you go to the gym before your body made you exceptional? Like it wouldn't take very long. And that's the world that we live in with regards to charisma is nobody's working on it. So all you have to do is, is this very small amount before people are gonna start to notice that you're in an elite tier which is awesome. And that's that's not uh, anything to do with what we teach, but just the fact that there's almost no competition. The bar is set incredibly <laughs> the bar is low. low. <laughs> the bar is low, yeah. That's low. the truth. All right. So you guys started out, one of the initial reasons that you wanted to get better at communicating was to be better with women. And there will be a lot of guys that want to improve yep. their ability to talk to girls. What are the principles of men communicating attractively to women? So we have broken down uh, the flirting process. Let's see if I can do this. It's been a long time since I've had to get out there and do this. <laughs> the first piece lad. is- Massive it, lad. <laughs> <laughs> so the first piece of it is just interest uh, that we think about. And let's pretend that you're in a bar or something. Uh, what we're trying to avoid in this stage is I have to go to the bathroom. I- I'm just bored of you. And so when we're talking about this, this is the playful stuff that we mentioned. It's a lot of the things with where do you, what do you do, where are you from, finding ways to be interesting. This isn't sexy necessarily. This isn't I want to hook up with you. It's just I want this interaction to continue. The second piece that I think a lot of guys skip out on is having genuine standards. Uh, 
when you receive a letter from Harvard University that you've been accepted, it feels wonderful. When you receive a letter from the community college that takes 100% of the people, it doesn't feel good. And the truth about dating, like it or not, is that we often date people to affirm things about ourselves. So when you have no standards for this other person and they feel like they could have been anyone, like truly it was their shape that attracted you to them, it doesn't generate any sort of interest in you. But if you're indicating through interaction, for instance, if you're out at a bar or a club and somebody is rude to a waiter or waitress or bartender, you go, oh my God, I can't stand people who do that. If I were, you know, I don't care how beautiful or fun or sexy you are. Like when I see that kind of behavior, it's a total turnoff. Just as an aside in a conversation, that's communicating to the person that they care about my personality, right? And now the thing is, you want to have genuine standards. So this is easier for people who have dated and who have had, you know, perhaps dated someone they were very attracted to who had personality traits that they didn't really like. If you can go through your history and ask yourself, what are the things that really do attract me to people that are not sexuality or, you know, shape-based things, what are the things that, that make me uh, repulsed, and list those out and find ways to incorporate those into conversation. For instance, I have most enjoyed my relationships with women who were incredibly affectionate. So when someone early in an interaction says, I'm a hugger, I go, oh my God, I'm going to love you. Like, I'm, I'm the same way. I can't stand people that just want to like touch on the shoulder, say hello, or like high five every time. And that communicates to them that there are things that I am selecting for and you actually are within that category. Now, it is crucial here to, this is not a strategy to fake, right? If you're just saying these things and really it's like, no, it's you just have the shape and the look, it's not gonna work nearly as well. Um, and it's also just not good for you. You're gonna wind up in the relationship that sucks. And then the last piece is sexual tension. And I think this is the part that is probably most uncomfortable for a lot of guys is being able to sit in a sexually tense scenario, which might be lingering on eye contact with someone interaction with a smirk on your face. It might be dancing close without having to crack a joke. Uh, being able to manage that sexual tension while sometimes relieving it with that playful push-pull stuff is is does not come natural <laughs> to most people. They try to escape it as soon as they feel it, and therefore they're never sitting with that discomfort. Sort of hard. Oh yeah, and it's it is tense. It's it's this in between stage of do you like me? Do I like you? Are we going to kiss or are we just looking into each other's eyes? And being able to hold that and enjoy that is something that uh, we talk about. It takes some time to develop, but there are some things that you can do. So, for instance. Most people, if they go on a date, say you match someone on Tinder or Hinge, they'll go to a bar, they'll sit down on opposite sides of a booth, talk about work, you know, and then they'll, okay, at the end of the night, well, I hope you had a good time, and there's been no sexual tension built, versus if you go to the bar, you say, hey, let's sit over here, you sit at the bar. While you're communicating with them, you put your hand on their hand. When they make a joke, you say, I love that, you give them a hug. You know, you you know, hold their their arm while you're telling a story to demonstrate what somebody did. You are building this sort of... Uh, this physical tension between the two of you that gets more and more comfortable and allows for those sort of close, is it happening, isn't it happening interactions. And you're not putting all the weight from going from zero to 60 with the goodnight kiss at the doorstep, which feels awful. And is just an amount of like discomfort that is, that is not fun for anybody to experience. So those are, those are the sort of the buckets that we, that I think about at least when I'm talking about it. And what I try to ask guys specifically to do, because it's a different scenario with girls, is to think about where they are not uh, going to the next level. And it's like, oh, they're just walking away from me as I start conversations. Like, okay, let's talk about being more interesting in conversation. 
or I'm, I've never actually, uh, you know, I'm hitting on girls and I'm being fun and interesting, but they have a sense that I'm just a player and they don't want to talk to me. It's like, well, you've got no standards. And then, so going through those, uh, using that as a diagnostic tool is, is something that we do. I think guys are probably quite fearful about running out of stuff to say as well. Have you got strategies for small talk? Yeah. So uh, one, there's, there's a couple of different videos. In terms of women uh, specifically in flirting scenarios, this is the hardest thing. My, my brain is like this, and you've seen in, in this interaction. I'm a logistical person. I, when you ask me a question, I want to answer it literally. The best thing for small talk is to recognize that especially on a date or in a bar or club, they just want a vibe. You don't have to have topics. It's not about not family, a fucking podcast. work. Yeah, it's, it's a podcast. It's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be fun, playful world building. So, uh, you know, if she says, oh my God, like you went to Jamaica, I studied abroad there. Be like, oh my God, fantastic. After this bar, we're going to the airport. We're going to get on a plane we're going to go scuba dive and we'll be there tomorrow morning we're going to have to fund this so somehow i don't know i'm going to have to take up a job selling lucy cigarettes <laughs> on the street whatever you're just like just this playful world building is a way that men tend not to instinctively communicate what do you mean by that, world building uh what i just created was almost an improvisational comedy scenario like we're going to go here here's what's going to happen obviously none of this is real this is this is i'm definitely not going to sell lucy cigarettes to fund a plane ride for tomorrow but when you can build these fake fun obviously not real fantasy scenarios that people participate in and sometimes men do this with their with their good friends when they're all in a group of people you know that would be like if blah 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 oh my god when you do that with women in fun ways that tends to uh set the vibe to be this fun, flirty thing that she can contribute to. And she's like, well, we're not going to stay in the same room tonight. Be like, perfect. I'm going to get a, uh, I'm going to have the penthouse and you could sleep in, you know, the water closet or whatever. <laughs> and then, no, I don't want to sleep in the water closet. So these, these are the types of things that are ridiculous that most men would never think about doing in conversation, but that are genuinely fun once you try on this new style of, of conversing. Now, of course, there's still going to be time for what do you do? Where are you from? What's your work? But especially in a bar nightclub scenario, which is I think what I'm tending towards more, if you lead with, here's my cool job, I work at Goldman Sachs, that's incredibly boring. I can't tell you the number of guys in New York I saw who started by handing out business cards instead of doing this fun stuff first. And then they'll be like, who are you? Tell me about yourself. And then at that point, the Goldman Sachs thing actually comes in as a pattern interrupt and you're like, oh, holy fuck. Like he's actually funny and interesting and he's prepared to sell loose cigarettes and (laughs) he's got a job at an investment bank. Yes, exactly. And the best way then when you're talking about, you know, okay, I work in an investment bank is to speak to your values. Again, people want to know your vibe and your values, not just the logistics of what you do. So if you say I work at Goldman Sachs, a much stronger way is to think, well, what drove me? Hopefully it's not just a sense of greed, but like, you know, I grew up poor and I always wanted to be able to take care of my mom and family. So like, you know, I don't want to be an investment banker for the rest of my life, but it's helping me to one day buy a house for my mom. Like that, if, if true, so attractive, so, so much more engaging than I'm a banker at Goldman Sachs. So if you're setting a vibe or sharing your values, those are two very strong modes of conversation to be in compared to just answering questions logistically, honestly. Yeah, that's an interesting one, man. I am. Um, I'm interested to find out what you think most men go wrong when approaching women, and if there's girls that are watching, they can put some of their nightmare <laughs> scenarios down in the comments oh, yeah. below as well. 
Well, um, know, women have a very different understanding of this because they're when they think what goes wrong with men, they're selecting for the men that have approached them, right? And so they're going, oh, they were way too pushy, way too forward. They said this goofy thing. They did some R nice guys stuff where they told me like they could be my boyfriend and I'd never have to go cold. The truth is most guys are are not in that category. They're not walking up to you. They're thinking about it, uh, but not doing it. Right. So that's that's by far ninety nine point nine. That's ninety nine point nine percent is not engaging in conversation. Uh, so that's definitely the, the thing that most of them do wrong. Though when women think about what do most men do wrong, they're going to go to the horror stories of the point one percent that just come in like complete arrogant asses. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's not it's disqualifying yourself before before you've spoken to someone. Uh, and there's a hundred different ways to speak to someone, mentalities that can help but uh, going in with a vibe of curiosity and again, flirt with the world. I think one of the things that men do wrong is that they try to be these snipers, which is like these boring people who walk through life, not talking to anyone, not engaging with the cashier. And then they're going to see the most beautiful woman at the bar who is surrounded by people who want to speak to her. And they're going to go, now I'm going to turn it on. Yeah. That's by the power damn... of gray school, they decide yeah. to pick up the fucking <laughs> Right. This, it's time to turn it on. It's time to do it. Yeah. And then they, he, they hulk out. And and just do it. That's not how it's ever been with me. I haven't seen it done that way. It it's by flirting with the world. It's by recognizing that the person that you should flirt with is the next person you interact with. And whether that's uh, someone in your apartment building as you're taking the elevator, who is an older gentleman, like being that outgoing, fun, friendly person, setting a vibe, goofing off, and then just happening to be near the person that you're interested in is going to be much, much more powerful because it's not something that you've got to like gear up for it's something that is going to be habituated into the way that you're used to speaking with people it won't feel like such a stretch so generally other than the uh how would you say misinterpreting purposefully misinterpreting the question and giving a silly answer are there some other easy ways that people can add humor into conversations yeah um okay so how do we add humor into conversations what i see i'm coming back to a lot of the the same things which is your initial conversational tracks are going to be totally similar and they already are totally similar people say the same things if you're in college they want to know what major you have if they're if you're in the workforce they want to know what you do for a living so having both an answer that is true and reveals your values and a playful answer to a lot of these different things and you can answer what are the three questions that you could ask the most uh i literally went out and split tested these different things and would just we just answer different stuff at different times in the nightclub or something like that. So that is one that you can do because those are just going to be free gimmies. It's kind of like uncle jokes. The thing, the uncle's just prepared for you to say something <laughs> and you have, you have a ready-made response. Uh, in terms of more spontaneous conversational stuff, there's a lot of different types of humor. One of the Russell brand is very fast, clever callback witty. That's tougher to implement an easy one is to say the opposite. And it sounds dumb, but if it's a super hot day and everyone's bitching about how hot it is and you go out, you're like, man, it's cold out here. I swear to God, you will get a chuckle from people because what, what humor is in many cases is just when the unexpected occurs, it causes a chuckle. So it's not the funniest way to be funny. You know, you can be witty and clever and have interesting callbacks, but saying the opposite is a very easy way to just to get laughs and chuckles and, and insert humor if you're not. The other thing that I recommend people do, because I do think that it's our brains, I guess this is more system one, just automatic, is you can prime yourself. 
So what one of rather than thinking of humor, if I think how I did it, it wasn't by purposely working in uh, saying the opposite necessarily. It was by watching a lot of Chris Pratt before I would go out. I just like watched 10 minutes and I'd watch some stepbrothers best of clips and put myself in that mode of ridiculous non sequitur statement. And I would just talk about prestige worldwide and screw, you know, investors, possibly you <laughs> and point at people and just lift these lines straight out of movies into context that it didn't make any sense. And that actually worked really well because it was, I was enjoying it. I was referencing movies that I had fun with and I was not taking all of the words that Chris Pratt would say, but his general demeanor was, was coming through. So yeah, trying to make like your fifth best friend, the comedian that you most enjoy and the vibe that you want to have and just watching them for 10, 15 minutes before going into a social interaction was, was actually the way that I did it. That's a really cool way to use like recency mm-hmm. bias to mm-hmm. influence. Cause it's, it, we can't all be Tim Dillon, you yeah. know, that, that yeah. ability to be who I think actually now Tim is, as far as I can see, one of the quickest guys that's doing sort of conversations on this circuit. Like Tim's the gay Russell Brand. At the moment, if you hear him on Rogan, <laughs> his ability, his ability to be unbelievably rapid. Do you see the uh, most recent Rogan where he said, do you think that there's other Epstein islands? And he's like, yeah, better ones. Hilton's building them now. <laughs> there's just slides where the kids go immediately down and they're straight into yeah, a yeah. furnace. And you're like, holy fuck, that was off the cuff. That's disgusting. So there is, if, if you're serious about humor, and again, you don't, with this charisma stuff, uh, storytelling, humor. You don't need to be excellent. You truly, the bar is so low. You could say the opposite and you'll be the funniest person in a group of most people. But if you really want to go deep in humor, improv comedy classes are awesome. I used to take these uh, these classes at the pit in New York and there was one on the West Side in Los Angeles. They train you to, we talked about world building for flirting, like how to structure a thing, create a scene, all that kind of stuff. But the specificity that Tim Dillon is driving into is not and the tags that he adds to that, right? It's not just, oh yeah, there's better islands. He's got the slide into the furnace. Those are, those are uh, there's principles of comedy that guide that. And it takes a long time to be able to do it that quickly, but you can develop that skill through practice and they will teach you almost everything you need to know about that in an improv comedy class if it's, if it's any good. So that's another thing. Like if you really want to be funnier, improv comedy is, is where I would start. So, so other than Russell Brand, who are some of your favorite communicators? Tony Robbins is excellent. And it's, it's the criticism I have is also his strength is that he has a story for every situation. And it's the type of story that has been split test over 40 years to elicit the most powerful reaction from you. Uh, so he's a fantastic communicator. If probably the best person that I can think of for inspiring someone to change in a 20 minute conversation, like he can get in there, move your, your motivators around and leave you and, you'll be on a different path. Oprah Winfrey is amazing. She, I, she's before my time, but having watched some of her interviews, she just gets people to cry and open up and has, and can do it in front of a studio audience, which is incredible, which the, the fact that she can create this safe, this bubble of safety around her and the chair, even when people are watching, I think speaks to the power of, of her communication style. Uh, there was a t- I mean, Bill Clinton was incredible back in the day. The stories that you read about Bill Clinton and the way that he would make you feel like the only person in the room, even if you were just in a line of people with whom he was shaking hands. I don't know if you've ever read any of those, but there's no, several what, what were the principles that people, um, oh, people attested that he, to be. So people don't know. They were just convinced that he wanted to be their friend. 
they were just totally like what he said when he shook their hand, they knew that they had a moment with him and that they were the most important person there. And, and so everybody I can't find, thought that. Yes. <laughs> I can't find footage of this. Um, I see, I've seen some, but there's not a ton of footage that I've been able to dig up. I've been trying to go, what is that? But from what I can see, it's that he he's from the South. He's slow. He's a little bit more deliberate and he will spend more time with people and also made it a point every day to study people's names, would remember the name of every single person such that if he shook your hand at the beginning of a fundraiser and learned two things about you, he had trained his memory at the end to be like, and by the way, I hope your son gets into UT and you know would, would say the two things that you spoke about back to you. And that is, again, extremely powerful, takes practice. Like he literally would work on the names of people apparently in the Oval Office that he had met and refresh himself on that kind of stuff. There's a story about Alex Ferguson, the Manchester United manager for a very long time. And he had a period when he first joined the club and he needed to get the players on side. I feel like he joined in turmoil or something. There was It was a little bit of a high pressure situation and he really, really needed to get all of the players on side really, really quickly. And he went round and was talking to one particular player and said, look, you are the most important player on the pitch today. It is all about you. And then it only took until the end of the season for the lads to start talking to each other and find out that he'd said that to every single fucking one of them. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the power of Bill Clinton is they never had to say it so they could never check it with yep. anyone else. Yep. It was just a sense that, and you know, that's the hack is you just lie to people. Uh, but he really did take the time to make people feel special, which is, which is impressive. Uh, and then one more that comes to mind is Kevin Hart. He... I think Kevin Hart is five foot two and he hangs out with basketball players that are seven foot two. And you can watch there, there is an innate power differential when you're standing like this to speak to someone that cannot be avoided. But he so quickly takes control of these groups of like boisterous basketball players such that he has them listening to what he's saying and they're reacting to his topics of conversation and his jokes he is incredible. And whenever people point to like, I'm too short for this, I always point him back to, to Kevin Hart. <laughs> I'm like, look, I don't know how many people in your life are two feet taller than you, but this guy is capable of uh, hanging with Shaq and making Shaq and all of his friends love him. So he's got something special as well. Did you see that video of Shapiro doing a debate and this guy comes up and asks a question and says, why is it that you say on your Wikipedia that you're five foot 10 when you're five foot four? And Shapiro immediately goes, how tall are you? And he goes, five foot ten. He goes, okay, come up here. Comes up and stands up and bends taller than him. Dude, it's so fucking funny. That shit's so fucking it. funny. You need to you need to check it out. It's so good. Oh God. That's like that's like um I mean, that's a bold move by Shapiro because he didn't know what that guy was going to say in response. And that guy just flubbed it. Just tell the truth, man. <laughs> and just say how tall you are. <laughs> so fucking I mean, on the topic, Shapiro's phenomenal. Like, he's one of the quickest guys. He genuinely is like listening to something at one and a half times speed. Uh, but yeah, I can't, at, I can't normal, listen to him faster normal time than that speed. on YouTube. It's, you no, to, it's most people I can do it too. One and a half. One and a half. <laughs> but he is quick yeah yeah um no i haven't so i've looked at his communication style and i do think he is obviously very smart i watch him and i did a video on his debate tactics i've i think that because he is a public debater he he has been trained to go for the dunk you know what i mean like that's that's a dunk he didn't address the question he didn't uh 
handle it logically, he dunked. And in discrediting the person who asked the question, won the social uh, approval of the crowd. So when I watch him, I I see a lot, oftentimes more, not necessarily sound logic, which he may have as well at his disposal, but shortcut dunk tactics to to discredit the other side, make them look foolish, etc. Was it you? Was it one of your videos that said, were you being critical around modern debating and saying that one of the sad things or one of the interesting quirks about modern debates is that it's not necessarily the person that has the best position. It's the person that mm-hmm. can get two or three laughs, big laughs during a debate. Yeah. And everybody seems to come away thinking that they won. Yes, yes. We've talked about that in several videos. I mean, that's Donald Trump, you know, when asked the question about his relationship to women, uh, only Rosie O'Donnell. He, he, you know, effectively, and, but that's what it is. That is communication, is the meta narrative of that interaction is her saying, this is an important question. And he said, no, it isn't. And the audience said, I'm on his side. And rather than addressing, he, he just took the frame, spun it on its head and said, I, I win. And was able to do that throughout all of the campaign, which is really interesting. But I do think that there's something to be said for taking the opponents in good faith and assuming the frames that they give to you and saying, maybe there's, maybe I will play within your frame and try to deal with it. Now, there are times when the frame which is presented to you is on its face ludicrous and you need to disrupt it in the way that Donald Trump did and Ben Shapiro did because that question is- Jordan Peterson, you Kathy this? Newman. And yeah, exactly. And that's the question that Ben Shapiro was asked. And that's kind of what he said. It's, it wasn't a sincere, good faith question. It doesn't sound like, why do you say this? And he said, you're a dick. And then the audience agreed with him for, you know, he said, you're a hypocritical dick. And that was the, that was the actual communication. And sometimes that's very useful to do is to ask yourself, not what are they saying? What is the frame of what they're saying back and forth to one another? And that, and that gives you some indication of, uh, if the conversation is happening in good faith or if it's just two people rejecting the form that the other one is throwing back at them. I suppose it must be useful in a debate to have a little bit of humor as a pressure release valve. You know, like you were saying, some people during sexual tension will make a joke or do a thing Mm -hmm. or look away or laugh or whatever because they can't deal with that tension. But sometimes in a debate, using that humor can actually, or in a difficult conversation, I imagine as well, like a, a, yeah. a disagreement or something's getting a bit heated, you can use that to just let a little bit, a little bit off. Yeah, I, I think it was, I think it was Stephen Fry, maybe at the Monk debates, who was just fantastic. And it, especially he was the, the only debate, funny person on stage. Yes, with two pitch sides that are sometimes throwing barbs at one another. I thought that he, I was like, regardless of who you came here liking, you probably left thinking that you could listen to that guy and that he wasn't a monster and. That That is impressive, and I think you're totally right, which is when things get super heated, you, there's a time to go, okay, tension off. And it's the same thing with sexual tension. Like, there, there is a time to go, and we need to crack a joke now. But most people just, their threshold for that is uh, as soon as they start making eye contact, like, ah, run away. <laughs> All right, I want to change tack a little bit now. Yeah. Can you tell me this story about getting your entire family to take MDMA? Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, so a couple years ago, I'll, I'll start. I, I took ayahuasca for the first time after a breakup and it was very impactful. The breakup is what drove me there. And what I took from it was much, much more than that. So I continued down this path of psychedelic therapy, uh, having never done any sort of drugs and having been off alcohol for 
eight years at that point. So this was like a big deal for me. Uh, and after experimenting with ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, psilocybin, and then MDMA, I found that MDMA was the one that was easiest to recommend to new newbies. And that's because MDMA, unlike ayahuasca, is oftentimes going to give you a historical view of your life. Versus ayahuasca, you might see shapes and the elves and DMT, and it's like, what the hell? MDMA is like a warm blanket being wrapped around you that gives you the courage to dive into your traumas and what you made of them. Uh, and oftentimes the things that come up are the things that you think, oh, I dealt with that. I, you know, that's totally fine and out of the way. So I got a lot of awesome stuff, which would take a long time to talk about from my experiences. And one by one went to my family and said, I really want you to do this. And what ultimately I think got them to agree was the changes that they saw in me. Um, particularly my dad was... Uh, didn't want to go, but a lot of what was coming for me in these experiences was wanting more of a connection with him. And it was tough for me even to say to him that like, I started telling him like a charismatic person, like I, you know, this would be good for you. And I think it would be good for your life. And you know, you would enjoy this. And what ultimately I think moved him was the authentic truth, which is I need you to do this so I can feel close to you. And that, that was like very fucking hard for me to say with a quaver in my voice near tears. And I think that was what ultimately got him to do it. In any event, last August, we all did it um, together. And it was fucking wild, man. It's, it was wild. There talk was me a through lot of stuff what, went down. Talk me through the morning of waking up. And when you look at your calendar for the day, <laughs> you have take MDMA with my entire family. Like what, what yeah. does that feel like? So we were we were in Big Bear, um, and we we got a little cabin with a therapist to to help coach us through the experience. I was so nervous, man. I barely needed to take MDMA. I was on the verge. I was shaking and on the verge, like I was I was ready to to crack already. Um, so within minutes of taking it, I was like, <laughs> you know, crying and talking about stuff. <laughs> and no, what I felt was, um, I've, I'm the oldest son, and what I felt was terror at the failings of my younger siblings because I was in the position of having to have you know of not of caretaker but of like I should have known better and terror at you know telling my parents the disappointments and that I that I had with them because they were to me were in the position of that so I was scared on both sides mostly scared of 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 getting it from my younger brother and sister for the letdowns that that I've had over the years um but yeah, it was it was a scary, exhilarating experience, and it was one that I was. Uh, there's a lot that I could say about it, but I think what the good that came of it, briefly, is that I assumed the correct role in the family of oldest sibling, and I think what I had done was assume a triangulated role in between my mom and my dad as like referee of their interactions. I I was like a third parent judgmental of the brother and sister separate from them uh and what i expressed to everybody is like i want to be a brother and a son not a guru Third which parent. is what i am yeah which is what i am on youtube you know I, everybody listens to me and that's kind of the dynamic that has been set up in the family it's like i don't want this i did this as a coping mechanism for what was happening like that i needed to to take this place and so i want to learn from the wisdom of my mom and dad and not have a separate power differential between my brother and my sister and and fit in that so there was a lot that happened but it was 
it was awesome. And I got a lot of what I needed. And honest to God, afterworld, I felt like a life's purpose was lifted off my shoulders. I was like, I fucking did it. If I just died today, I did what I had to do. Um, and so it was, it was awesome. And it was a culmination of a lot of different things. And I highly recommend exploring the idea of psychedelic therapy. I don't, I don't recommend it for everyone and it's not, there's definite uh, contraindicators, but it has been the most powerful thing of the last five to 10 years. And the only thing comparable to it is the realization that I could uh, consciously change myself. And now I'm getting to the realization that my unconscious is most of me. So, so that's what I kind of have to address is not all the things that I think about, but the things that just are the case about me. Man, that's so beautiful. I'm really, really happy to hear the progress that you made for you and Thank for your you. family. It's like really gorgeous and puts into perspective the work that can be done. You know, mm -hmm. there's this strange situation that occurs May, may have been early for you. It sounds like it might have been a little bit early for you, but there's a strange situation that everybody goes through at some point when they stop being the one who is not at the mercy of their parents, but with their parents being the wisdom givers and that mm -hmm. power dynamic flips. Mm -hmm. And it's now the parents that are coming to them for yeah. help with technology, for concerns that they have around what's going to happen next, for uh, I've left my job, for I want to change my career, for when am I going to retire, for whatever it might be. And that navigating that change of polarity, because it just happens. Just one day you're having a conversation with your parents and you go, yeah. oh, oh, I'm steering the ship of this interaction mostly now. Yeah. And only five or 10 years ago, I was completely that behest to your whims. And I, mm -hmm. I was basically just this blob, this like useless blob that, that you would give a lift to sport practice or whatever. <laughs> and it's so bizarre that dynamic changing is so strange and, and, and odd to, to navigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many reactions that I have to that. Um, generally, I think that people underestimate the it's cliched you know freud made it so stupidly cliche that we throw out the influence of early childhood interactions but uh in the same way that we all have accents that we picked up when we were very very young that no matter what happens in life we will not use like we have accents in what love means to us we have access accents in what power means to us and you can you could be told over and over again but you will speak with that accent when it comes to love and power and all these other things. So revisiting it, one, is very important. And then more specifically to what you said, uh, what for me, and I think every family is different, is to recognize and um, have enough faith in my parents that just because they don't know the technological stuff, that there isn't still wisdom there. And I think very early on, I said, because it was difficult or frustrating or I was angry, I said, you don't know shit, I'm gonna do it. And it served me well, you know? My dad wanted me to stay a consultant, I fucked off and started Charisma on Command. It worked for, you know, there was, there was merit to going, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. But uh, in going back and saying, I threw some baby out with the bathwater and there is, there is wisdom here. And the world, at least for me and my family, the world is not a place that I have to discover entirely on my own. Uh, and I have the trust in you that some of your wisdom can help guide me through it is what I needed to recognize because I was too fiercely my own guru, my own independent thing. 
Uh, well, think about yeah. think about what we were talking about earlier on. That you have this period of making yourself, of becoming, and then it kind of swings across into being, and then you realize that maybe some of the things that served you when you were twenty one are now your terrorizers when you're thirty one. Mm-hmm. And okay, now I've got rid of these, but oh shit! Like, what does this leave me as now? You know, this this kind of vacillation, kind of like a pirate ship at a a theme park, right? That it just swings backwards and mm-hmm. forwards, swings backwards and forwards. And what you hope to try and do is to get it to sit somewhere close to where Plum would be. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time, it's just working out when you're veering off course. Um, so for instance, with your parents, you know, you, you go through this period, you're totally correct. You're totally correct that you could see, well, look, inevitably everyone who is a millennial or sort of a Gen Z at the moment is teaching their parents about technology. And you can use that as a... Uh, crowbar to not only have power over your parents but also to kind of throw out all of the other shit that they yeah. tell you to do it's like you can't even work the fucking ipad what are you going to teach <laughs> and <laughs> and learning that again and relearning okay fuck i i thought that i was the person that was in control and i was able to help and be useful and now i need to deprogram that shit as well and i need to mm-hmm. now reintegrate the thing that i learned when i was two which is listen to parents parents often know best <laughs> It's just, it's spirals, right? Ever tighter and yeah. tighter circles, as Joss Weichkin calls it. Yes, I, I, I love that. Uh, yeah, it, it's been, I guess when I think about the, the ship, it's almost the question is, what pushed the ship to the other side? And in, in many cases, it was like, it was pain. It was like, I was listening to you guys and it hurt. And so I went, never again. And I think that idea of never again causes people to overcompensate in so many areas of their life. So like they get rejected by a girl and they go, never again will I feel that pain. And then all of a sudden they train themselves, become these super players who would never in relationships and never have to suffer. And somebody said, you know, one of the most powerful things that you can do is be willing to experience the thing that you made a vow to never experience and to say, I am willing to be heartbroken again. I'm willing to have my mom and dad give me advice that is heartbreaking again. And where that allows you to come back to, it does allow you to get hurt again, but it allows you to land in that middle instead of just having to stay in this crazy reactive uh, refusal to get hurt by the way that you got hurt before. Aubrey told me the story about the first time, I think he was 21 and he'd just gone away from home and he went to vegas on his own and he went to go and see something like the cirque du soleil or some other sort of show apparently he was sat in one of the front rows watching these women perform these beautiful acrobat women perform and apparently he was there gripping the arms of the chair and looking at them and saying like halfway between a mantra and a prayer to himself i will become the sort of man that these girls will <laughs> never say no to in my this is this is my purpose on this life and he talks about how most of his 20s and his 30s was um spent worshiping the divine feminine which is Aubrey speak for um trying chasing, to try chase to tail. chase tail, yeah <laughs> trying to fill a void inside worshiping of himself with lots of women feminine. yeah <laughs> worshiping the divine feminine um and now he's married and I asked him about this question on the show and I was like, look, man, you know, you spent 20 years building, uh, 10 years building a business, which just got sold to Unilever for a huge undisclosed amount. And you spent 
20 years worshipping the divine feminine and you just got married um what does where does this leave you now are you concerned that you're going to lose your edge and he was like well fuck man like to be honest i think that you're probably not far off the money like i need to rediscover what it is to be me and that's somebody who has now faced down some of those demons you know he's had to face down his demons around um insufficiency and around monogamy to get married so he's mm. leaned into that discomfort but from that okay so what about all of the presumptions and the armor and the protection strategies that i developed from being polyamorous from yeah. being able to um anesthetize myself from pain within one relationship with another and be able yeah. to move people and swap them around and the same with money the fact that the dopamine spikes as you guys had with your sales yesterday um if you got a huge payout for charisma on command tomorrow unbelievable dopamine spike but they're not coming again mm -hmm. now what you're not utilitarian yeah. rational beings it's not about the fact that well if i got you know 50 million today then that's me for the this amount of time and actually the utility is better for me to have it right now than it would be for me to have it in the future you don't think like that in three no, weeks no. time you'd go come on come on mr reptilian brain is he's hungry feed me yeah yeah, the I mean, with money, it seems that the only thing that yeah, people just want more, right? And this, the, I I think I was lucky with money to realize this very early on that nobody cares about the amount in their bank; they just want it to be more than it was. And if it's even if they have a fifty million bank that is slowly decreasing, that person will likely feel less rich than somebody who has fifty thousand, but you know is going to have fifty five thousand <laughs> in in the next period of time. So. I find myself, I think, uh, I'm younger than Aubrey, but at a similar phase of asking, you know, I was doing a lot of uh, open relationship stuff and uh, I figuring out what was driving that is I still haven't gotten to the core of it. But as, as I have slowed down and been now monogamous for a while, several months, which feels like a while. Congratulations. <laughs> it's, it's a victory. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm becoming aware of the strategy and there's, you know, it's interesting what it does for you. It's, it does a couple things. One, I never had to worry about cheating on anyone because I took that off the table. Like I can't cheat on you. We're in an open relationship. So all of a sudden my ability, you know, self-control, discipline, et cetera, it never needs to be explored. Number two, uh, I never had to ask myself, uh, why do I want this? It was like, oh, I'm interested in this. I can go and do it, which is a nice feeling to have as opposed to what is driving this. And as I look into what is driving this, it's not what most people would think in open relationships, which is, you know, sex and, and all that kind of stuff. As I get deep into it, it's like, I feel like I want to be the type of guy that that type of girl likes. And so it is, uh, you realize the some of, and I'm not saying all open relationships are this, and I'm saying not, not that all of my drives are this, but there is an element of it, which is narcissistic, I want you to reflect on me the you know ways that I would like to feel about myself. Dude, uh, Orb said and, he, he his argument was I didn't feel like the void was filled with one woman. Mm -hmm. But maybe two will do it. <laughs> um oh, two hasn't hit it. What about three? And it just <laughs> tick, 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 tick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I don't think that uh and I guess what you find is that the void, that there is no amount. 
and that doesn't imply is it not 10 uh, i always thought it was yeah 10. <laughs> has he tried does he tried 20 <laughs> no that's that's and that's how i see people with money he's like you know a hundred thousand didn't do it but maybe a million would or subscribers I've, I've seen this over and over again and i guess the question is how stubborn of a learner am i going to be i really hope not that stubborn because i have been given a lot of the things that i've aimed for uh, Jim Carrey has a fantastic quote, like, I hope you all get every one of your dreams and hopes met so that you can realize that none of those are going to fulfill you. Uh, and I've been very lucky to have achieved what I what was a financial goal or a dating goal or a um, charisma fame level that, that I wanted to achieve. And I just hope that my subconscious picks up that that ain't the game <laughs> anymore. And uh, it's starting to is what I'm is what I can say. It's I'm starting to get the message after a long time. And psychedelics and MDMA have been a big help. I've just thought of something. So I have I've had an insight for a little while that there's only so long that imposter syndrome can stick around while you disprove it in reality before you admit to yourself that this imposter syndrome has nothing to do with your competence and everything to do with your thought patterns and your addiction to the um, imposter syndrome itself. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's an equivalent to do with, I will be happy when Yeah, there is only so much success and so many goal stones, uh, milestones that you can reach. And you watch yourself move the goalposts further away from yourself again, before you admit to yourself that it is not about the number and it is everything to do with the mindset that is leading you toward that interaction. Yeah. You know, and interestingly, when I, I speak to people about this and even myself and they'll, they'll say, you know, I totally get what you're saying, but I still feel like I need to do it. Oftentimes my advice to them is, yeah, then you're not done. <laughs> you have to go get more money and have to do more stuff because if you're trying to do the enlightened thing, because that's what an enlightened person would do, you're still just stuck in that game of trying to be the best, do the rightest thing, you know, become enlightened the fastest. So just bottom out, bottom out on hedonism. Try not to hurt people, obviously, like uh, be considerate of other people's feelings, be honest, but keep your eyes open, I find is the most common advice that I'm giving to people. It's like pay attention to how you feel on that second date, that third date. You know, pay attention to the excitement that you have when you think that you have a date and how you actually feel when you're on the date and how you feel after that date. And notice if and when you feel excitement and fulfillment throughout that process. And what I have seen as I, have, as I have kept my eyes more open is that I feel anxiety when I don't have the triggers that I think I need, excitement before those triggers are fulfilled. And then as they're being, I say, I shouldn't say fulfilled, as they're being uh, like, you know, I'll just use a concrete example. Uh, when I was dating multiple people, I would feel anxiety if it had been a long time before, uh, since I had done that. I would feel excitement when a date was planned. And I would feel fine, regular, not even amazing on the date. And then sometimes there would come a point where I was like, I don't even want to be doing this right now. Like I'd rather just be home like I was last night wishing I was here. <laughs> and so when you realize the crazy cyclical nature of that, uh, at some, I, I like, I want out is how I feel. Dude, people I don't need to fucking, want to keep doing that. They need to understand how teleologically wired humans are. So there was a study done, this is really, really interesting, study done on the most enjoyable parts of a night out. 
and this mm. was quite important for me. I was like, fuck, I'm going to pay yeah. for the... This is after I'd left uni as well, so I couldn't even access the journal article, so I had to download it. And they had people do self-reports, right? That self-reports for a bunch of different people. It's like a relatively representative sample size, pretty big study. Uh, and they had people do it from the middle of the afternoon until... 12 midday the next day right so yeah. self-report what is your current level of excitement peak mm -hmm. level of excitement for pretty much everybody was about 8 p.m when they were getting ready yeah, before they'd yeah. gone on the night out they've got maybe opened the first bottle of wine or first couple of beers they're getting ready with them with their bros they're shouting at each other because somebody's in the shower they're talking about where they're going to go and who they're going to go out with and who's djing and what the night's going to be like that was it we are yeah. anticipatory beings that's what we're here for. We're here to anticipate the thing that arrives. And dissatisfaction is not a bug. It is a feature. It is a part of being a human. Unsatisfactoriness is just built in to human nature because if the way that you imagined having sex or eating a meal or chasing down a gorilla or a cheetah or whatever it is that you're chasing down, you'd probably be dead if you chase those two down, whatever it is, an <laughs> antelope, if it was as satisfying as you imagined it to be, you would never do it again. Mm. It is built into your programming for everything to just be a bit shitter than you thought it was. Like, I hoped it would be 10 and it was like seven and a quarter. Yeah, yeah. Because maybe next time, like, you need to get it into your head that that is not because the situation didn't meet your standards. It's because your brain is wired for you to never be able to meet those standards. It will mm. always pitch potential reality higher than actual reality can go. And as soon as you see that code, you realize, okay, uh, there's this example that I always love to use. People that are going away on holiday, right? You imagine the holiday, you plan it with your yeah, partner yeah, or your oh friends. Yeah, oh my gosh, I've lived this. <laughs> and you think about the hotel that you're going to stay in. You think about the restaurant. You maybe research the restaurant beforehand and you look at the menu and you look at the cocktail list and you think, oh God, I'm going to have this amazing trip. And you get there and it's the first night and the sun's going down and you sat in the, in the restaurant on the exact table, the one that you, you spotted on the Facebook page and you yeah, sent yeah. to your partner and you said, right. And you sit down and you're at the table. But then you notice that there's a bit of sand between your toes and it <laughs> is sort of a bit irritating and you got this drink but you got the blended one as opposed to the iced one and maybe it would have been nicer and there's like the the food is nice but it's a bit more spicy than you thought and the sun's kind of mm -hmm. burning my eyes a little bit like that is life there yeah. is no situation where that doesn't happen your ability to be idealistic is always going to outstrip reality uh, reality's ability to deliver that to you mm -hmm. and as soon as you realize that that is the shortcut I'm adamant that that's one of the most important lessons that everybody needs to learn. Yeah. I mean, and again, there's so many, so many angles on that, that, that insight. What I'm trying to learn, which is a thing that I cognitively know, but like you described, you know, emotionally still have don't. this, yes, emotionally don't. And I'm still, uh, an anticipatory being is that I want to be a person more interested in reality than my idea of reality. Like, cause I, I have seen through some of the psychedelic stuff that that is where the joy is. It, like the joy is the sand in your toes and the crappy shit. And you know, it's, it's this conversation right here and, and my ass on the couch. Uh, and I'm trying and I, I haven't figured it out and perhaps trying is what takes me away from it. <laughs> you know, there's all, there's, there's just layers and layers of traps in these, in these sorts of enlightenment things, but that is increasingly where I'm headed. And it's why, you know, you asked me a lot of the charisma questions today 
And I genuinely had to think back because I have learned that making, I still think charisma is a worthy pursuit. Like I think finances are a worthy pursuit. Like I think dating is a worthy pursuit and all those sorts of things. But where I'm at is that I no longer can delude myself into believing that the more people that like me, enjoy my stories, laugh at my jokes is going to improve my subjective experience of life at all. I just, I I cannot believe that given my life experience at this point, I've had too much of it. Uh, And so personally, I've moved away from charisma and towards enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, spirituality. And I'm still just very, very beginner novice in these stages. That said, if you haven't taken the time to feel like you've locked down your finances and are satisfied with your, or not satisfied, have worked on your dating life and your social scenario and have a career that you thought would be, you know, really fulfilling. I think that you need to have that firsthand experience of wanting and then being disappointed to have that lesson really sink in. You can't listen to someone else tell you that it's not going to be worth it when you get to the top of the mountain. You got to get to the top of the mountain and go, is this it? Yeah, you just have to do it for yourself in my experience and for what I've seen from friends and family. You need to close that loop. There's a Naval quote, which yeah. I fucking adore. And he says, yeah. it is far easier to achieve your material desires than to renounce them. Yeah. <laughs> and I that love it. is, I love it. That is the same for pick status desires, uh, notoriety desires, sexual desires, whatever. I have a buddy who, uh, it was big into pickup artistry and it was like prolific, like just a fucking weapon, an absolute weapon. Every single night that we went out, there would be one or two girls that he would go. He wow. would leave a night out at 10 p.m. to take a girl home, have a shower and come back out to get another girl and take her home. And I was like, fuck, man, like you are committed to this thing. Like, what, what, what is it? And he's like, yeah, man, my, my future wife, she really better appreciate all of this effort I'm putting in. I'm like... You're going to have that- to you're going to have to explain to me about how the hundreds of girls that you're bedding is in tribute to your future unknown wife. He's like, well, when I'm walking down the street with my two and a half kids and my dogs and my wife and I'm pushing the pram, I don't want to look at a Brazilian girl and think, I wonder what it's like to fuck a Brazilian girl. I want to have every single one of my sexual quirks ticked off the list, and that's the same. You know, it's mm-hmm. a um, I I. I do feel like he probably over-delivered on that. Like that's not <laughs> achieving your sexual desires. That's indulging it. That's swimming in them. Um, yeah. But it's the same thing. Yeah. And I think it's um, in my limited experience, I've got to go in just a minute, but it's all right. it, uh, yeah, I don't know that that's exactly how it's going to work out for him is I guess my, my reaction. It's at least for me, it has been, um, it's been a journey of disappointment and frustration and not one of like, got it, good, I'm ready to move on to the next thing. And I actually think that there's something important about that because uh, when I was more in the phase and still have it in me uh, of, you know, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, that doesn't go away. It just it just comes back after some time Different off. flavors, so, different hats, yeah. different faces. But uh, you know, and, and and the time for another conversation. But I still, I also think that, you know, what we're saying is, you know, two, three, four, 10 girls isn't going to do it. I'm not sure that one does either, you know, and there is something to be said for the fact that the monks, uh, they renounce sexuality entirely. So I don't want to say that the answer to all of this, because it's not open relationships, is a committed monogamous relationship. I think that would be uh, 
a little bit too convenient of logic. I'm open to that possibility, but I'm still exploring that in my life right now. And I don't, I do not know the answer. Funny story, Obbs tried celibacy and he lasted four days. <laughs> <laughs> so so maybe it is you know who maybe knows we'll find out <laughs> charlie man uh i'm really really glad that we connected like we've spoken a ton this week and i'm very very glad that we've got each other in our lives now i think i'm going to come on your show at some point we'll talk some shit and yeah please no i've i've uh i've had a great time man chatting with you you are uh fantastic at listening like truly i can i can see the way that you engage with things that are being said i'm i'm jealous if i was interested in charisma still that is what i would be working on <laughs> well that's a very very pleasant compliment uh people want to join charisma university and they want to check out your channel where should they go it's charisma on command on the uh on youtube and in just about any of our videos at the top of the description link charisma university you can google it as well it'll it'll take you to the page Dope. Man, I'm looking forward to speaking again soon. Beautiful. Take care, everybody. <laughs>